Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the end of another study, for the faithfulness you've shown in bringing us here regularly for so long, for the better part of a year, Father, and guiding us through your word and asking us to examine our hearts as we concern ourselves with what it says. And I know, Father, for each of us at different points along this path, something has made an impression on our heart when there's also been days when perhaps we didn't take much away for whatever reason. None of that reflects on your word, though, Father. It's only a matter of the teacher or perhaps our hearts in the moment. But what we have been given, Father, is something special that we we know will have eternal impact. And we thank you for that now. And we know, Father, as we go forward in tonight and, and in future weeks past this study, there may be those who come across our path who, who for them, something we've learned is exactly what you need them to have. And we've been prepared without even knowing it to be the better spouse, the better parent, the better friend, to draw an example from Saul or from David and to explain it in a way that makes someone else walk closer to you. For that's its purpose, Father. Your word is a lamp to our feet. We want to be on the path that you set before us and not leave it as much as we can, Father, by the weakness of our will and, our, and by the strength of, of your spirit. We just ask you continue to get, guide us down that path of, of walking in your will, walking according to your precepts, setting an example to the world that draws men and women to concern themselves with you and with eternal matters. And if anything we've learned in this study can move us in that direction, Father, then it was worth every minute. We ask you for that opportunity. And uh, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, wrapping up our story of Saul's fall and David's rise. It's been ten years since David first entered Saul's court, back early in this book. And in those years, the Lord has trained David in skills necessary to be a king for his time on the throne. He's been trained in warfare. He's been trained in music. He's learned shepherding and diplomacy. And during his time in the wilderness, he's learned some of the most important lessons in his life. He's learned to rely on the Lord, to seek him in prayer, to follow his commands. Along the way, he's suffered loss. He's suffered deprivation. He's suffered despair. He's known triumph. He's seen miracles. He's found love. And therefore, he's almost ready to take the throne. Today's the day in the story that Saul and Jonathan will die on a battlefield and as a result the nation will seek for a new king and the question of who would or should succeed Saul will be on everyone's mind in Israel and with David having been living in the land of Israel's enemies now for the past 16 months the answer of who should succeed Saul is not as obvious as it may seem for you and I sitting here today with our hindsight. The Lord has to make sure David is the natural and only choice in the minds of the people. For he, of course, is the Lord's choice. And therefore, the rest of chapter 30 and into chapter 31 is devoted to explaining how the Lord prepares the hearts of the people to receive David as their king, even as he removes Saul. David has just returned from defeating the Amalekites in the south and rescuing the families of all his men. He won that victory, you may remember, with only 400 of his 600 men. He was forced to leave 200 of them behind due to their exhaustion. Despite having a third fewer men in his force, David nonetheless was able to win this great victory against the Amalekites. And as a result of that victory, he took considerable spoil. And that's where we left off last week. In verse 20 last week, we read that the people called this war booty David's spoil. And what they're meaning by that is, David has the right to determine the distribution of this wealth. He owns it. 
Logically, he's going to share it with those who helped him fight in the battle. But David's prepared to go well beyond that norm. And here's another difference between David and Saul. David is a man after God's own heart, so he does the unexpected with this bounty. Verse 21. When David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook of Besor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David approached the people and greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, You must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage, that they shall share alike. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. David and his 400 men and the families they rescued have returned from the battle and they enter Ziklag, the the city that David had, and they are greeted by those who stayed behind. And the word for greet is shalom, which means they simply wished peace among those who had stayed behind. And that's probably an understatement for what has been going on here. This had to have been an emotional reunion for all of those families, as you would expect. They've been separated. They know what's going to happen. Now they see their families again. There's a tremendous outpouring of emotion, I assume. But that word shalom, it's also an indication that David is not going to hold these men in contempt for their unwillingness to enter into the battle with him in the first place. Once again, he displays a degree of compassion here that is out of keeping with the way most military leaders or commanders would have been doing things in that day. This is, again, in keeping with God's own heart, not in the keeping of what men would do. But as you hear, within his group, within his men, there are some who were not like David's heart. They are called wicked and worthless in verse 22. And their wickedness is evident by their willingness to cut off from receiving any of the spoil all of those who did not fight. Now that might have been fairly normal actually for situations like this, for for armies under similar circumstances. But as we said, this isn't the way David's heart thinks. This isn't the way he works. And the reason David viewed this situation so differently is because he understood the source of the victory differently. The wicked and the worthless soldiers were sitting there thinking to themselves that they get credit for the war that they just won, for the battle they just won. They believed that they had defeated the Amalekites by their own power. And therefore, based on that logic, they thought they deserved the spoil. And conversely, by that same logic, men who failed to fight could not take any credit for the victory and therefore they didn't get any of the spoil. But remember, we saw last week that these men were likely greatly outnumbered by the army that they defeated. Remember, the number of the Amalekites who escaped the battle on camels was equal to the total number of David's men, 400. So you can be sure that they had entered into that battle as a long shot to win it. And therefore, what would have to explain their victory? David knew that the Lord brought the victory supernaturally because he saw the circumstances with open eyes. And so in keeping with the promise God gave David that he would allow David to return these families. David simply saw this as the natural result of what God said he would do. In verse 23, you notice David says, the Lord gave the victory. If David concludes that the Lord gave the victory, then he also must conclude that the share of the spoil be divided equally since there was no one among any of the men who could say they earned the victory. No one could claim credit. 
And the ones who went into battle could have no more credit than the ones who stayed behind with the baggage because it really didn't matter who went. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter how many there were. It didn't matter what they did. They're instruments in God's hand. But that just means that they were not personally credited with the outcome. Now, the principle that David is following here or exemplifying here, establishing here, has profound implications for all believers in many areas of our spiritual life. The principle recognizes that believers can't take credit for God's work through us. And therefore, we can't use our successes in ministry as cause for individual distinctions, especially if it comes at the expense of others in the body of Christ. That principle impacts how you talk about your success, how you fund your work in ministry, how you qualify those who serve in ministry. Paul says it this way in Romans 12.3. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allocated to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or if he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Paul is saying, if the Lord has given each of us the means for our success in serving him, then who are we to elevate ourselves among others? within the body of Christ. If we're all part of one body, then how important can any one part be in the whole? And if the same Spirit is empowering all of us, as He desires, I might add, then what part did we play in creating any distinction or establishing any success in our own ministry? It's a very critical idea within ministry that's often missing among those who get very wrapped up in what they're trying to accomplish for the Lord. That it isn't about us. We don't have much, if anything, to offer. Frankly, we have nothing of any serious value to offer to God. We operate, though, with this understanding that He can do a lot of things through us, but not to our credit. When we operate with an awareness of this principle, there's a lot of good things that start to happen. And I don't intend this to be a comprehensive list. It's just an example of what came to my mind. I think one of the first things is we remain humble. Or as Paul put it, we have sound judgment. In Greek, the term sound judgment is one word. It means having right mind. We see the spiritual world accurately without diluting ourselves, without inflaming our pride. We'll worry less about perceptions of us and spend less time promoting ourselves and more time lifting up the Lord. It's a chain of thinking. If I think my own innate qualities produces the outcome that I celebrate, then I care more about promoting that. I care more about talking about that. I care more about how many people know that it was me who did it. But if we don't think like that, if we follow the principle David's establishing here, we'll experience contentment with anonymity, knowing that it is woe to us when men speak well of us, according to Scripture. Men and women who serve God in this way typically, and I think it's probably safe to assume always, accomplish far more for the kingdom than those who make personal recognition a priority. Because at the very least, if you make that a priority, you spend time on it. If you spend time on it, you're not spending time on stuff that matters. So by necessity, you have to diminish the work you're doing for the Lord if you're busy building yourself up. I think the stereotypes are easy to see, and they always involve someone other than us. That's why we need to think about this a little more broadly. It's not always that we're assuming the positive side of this, that is that we're promoting ourselves and thinking too well of ourselves. We do that too. 
But I find it more interesting in the negative. It happens far more often in the negative. That is to say, we talk ourselves down. We claim we can't do something because we don't have a pedigree, background, experience, knowledge, approval, accreditation. God can do all things. And he can do it through anyone. And I've often said it's more about availability than ability. And so if people are interested in seeing God work through them, you just show up. And if you're too busy thinking, I'm not qualified, well, then you probably won't show up. And if you don't show up, you won't see what God can do through you. It's the same principle in reverse. Secondly, living under this principle means we won't be preoccupied with the contribution of others as they seek to please the Lord. We can set aside questions of who's doing more or who's not doing enough or how come so-and-so isn't doing their part or why do I have to always be the one to do it. We can trust that the Lord will judge all fairly and we can rest in that assurance without passing judgment on one another for whether they look the way we think they should look compared to our standard for what ministry should look like. Again, Paul puts it this way in Romans 14.4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. In our church, we have a little... Uh, saying that sort of tries to implement Romans 14, which is to say um, we only have one answer to people who come to us with a question about involvement in ministry. And the answer is always yes. All we say is yes. Uh, can I do this? Yes. Can we do this? Yes. Is this, you know, in the sense of uh, is it permissible? Now, the method or the timing, those things are questionable. Sometimes you have to talk it through. But there's never a sense of, well, you're not qualified. You're not on the team. You didn't sit in the meetings. We don't approve your thinking. It's all our own thinking. That's why we're in charge. To me, that's not implementing Romans 14. That's putting a stumbling block in front of a brother who has maybe otherwise felt the lead of the Spirit to go do something. Let him do it. David's principle is profound in the way it influences the way we think about ministry, both for ourselves and how we relate to others. We're all clay. We're all in God's hand. If we're working in the spirit, great things will happen. If we're working in the flesh, not so great things will happen. And as a result, we can't hold others in contempt. We can't put others on pedestals. We can't talk ourselves down. We can't talk ourselves up. So David has made a wise and courageous decision. He has resisted the temptation to selfishly exclude 200 men, which if he had done that would have resulted in himself and the 400 receiving a greater share. So it's in a self-sacrificial way. He gives all in equal amount. Moreover, he sets forth a principle that all those who serve in Israel are equal beneficiaries of the Lord's blessing. And in verse 25, we're told this becomes a new ordinance instituted in the nation. And that unconventional choice becomes the opening for David to claim the throne of Israel because his wisdom doesn't end with just distributing it to the extra soldiers. David goes a step further. He holds back some of the spoil so that he can use it to win over the entire nation. Verse 26. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Behold, a gift for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, and to those who were in Ramoth of the Negev, and to those who were in Jatir, and to those who were in Arir, and to those who were in Sifmath, and to those who were in Estamoah. And to those who were in Rakal, and to those who were in the cities of the Jahamirlites, and to those who were in the cities of the Kenites, and to those who were in Hormah, and to those who were in Bor Ashan, 
and to those who were in Atak, Atak, and to those who were in Hebron and to the, all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to go. What David has done is distribute a portion of the plunder to the elders of Judah and to the towns and the regions in which David has spent the better part of the last ten years fleeing from Saul. These are the principal places that gave him shelter, accommodation, protection, provision, and he's using the same principle we just examined and applying it now on an even broader scale. And here's what I mean by that. David's victory over the enemies of Judah in this latest battle wasn't just the result of a momentary intervention by God in that one battle. On the contrary, the Lord has been working steadily over the past ten years to bring David and his men through that entire period, that entire episode of wandering, and prepared him to come to this moment to accomplish this feat. It seems then that David has learned the final and most important lesson of his time in the wandering, and that is that the Lord has been forever and always working in every circumstance to care for him and to train him up, directing his steps. And as a result, he applies the principle to himself, and he says the spoil from this victory is just the latest evidence of God's grace in my life. And so as he reflects on the events that brought him to this moment, he must have realized, well, all the elders of Judah are likewise responsible for this victory. I mean, if they hadn't given me accommodation, if they hadn't protected me in the wilderness, if any of those things hadn't been there, well, then where would this victory have been? Where would I have been? When the elders in Bethel or in the Negev supported David, they were doing the Lord's work that led to the victory in this battle. When the Kenites or the men of Hormah protected or fed David, they were instruments in God's hands. So when David received his reward, he understood, well, the Lord's been working through all of these, therefore they all should share in the spoil. There's a political side to this, absolutely. But I think it's consistent with the heart that says, to anyone who is an instrument of God in the work of God, should benefit from the blessings that come out of that work. He says it's a gift from the defeat of your enemies. So in this very politically astute maneuver, the gesture cements the loyalty of the elders of Judah for him, we must assume, so that after the death of Saul, when there is going to be some disagreement over who should logically pick up the throne at this point, David will be in a position to receive Judah's support. And Judah becomes the heart of David's support. This is his tribe, after all. And he is well prepared to assume the role. They know that. They see his strength. And he is prepared to to use them as a launch pad into that opportunity. In fact, if you glance back across the events of this one chapter, chapter 30, you will see David exhibiting a list of admirable leadership traits, which I believe are the fruit of all the years he spent wandering and all the work God's been doing on him. You see examples of empathy in here, decisiveness, kindness, integrity, generosity, And above all, faith. And those qualities were probably present in David to varying degrees from years ago. But his experiences in the wilderness, in fleeing Saul and dealing with all that came with that, have matured him in necessary and important ways, so that now he is clearly qualified to sit on the throne, and in a way I should add that Saul never was. And in this way, Saul and David become a really interesting picture here of Satan and Christ, respectively. You have Saul assuming the throne of Israel, yet lacking the proper pedigree. He's not from the right tribe. And lacking the proper qualifications and temperament. He wasn't of the correct tribe. He doesn't have the tested character. He doesn't have the heart of God. As a result, he's a usurper to the throne. And his reign brings only death and destruction to Israel. Meanwhile, the Lord is quietly 
patiently raising up a humble servant from unassuming circumstances who is destined and anointed to one day rule the nation. And he comes from the proper lineage. He has a heart after God. He goes through a time of severe testing during which he is shown to be worthy to take the throne of God's people. A throne he assumes after the usurper is destroyed. It's easy to see the comparison there between Satan and Christ, right? And obviously we aren't suggesting that Saul is satanic or evil or even an unbeliever. That's not the point. We're just noting the way the arc of his life represents Satan's role in contending with Christ for the throne. Satan wants the throne that's been reserved for Christ. And for a time on earth, it appears as if he has it because he rules over a fallen world that is enslaved to him, at least to the degree God allows. So he's like Saul ruling over in Israel in a kind of illegitimate way. But a humble Christ, meanwhile, was brought to the earth, tested, proven worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father. And even now, the kingdom has been ripped away from Satan and granted to Christ. All that remains is for the enemy to be set aside, to be destroyed, and Christ to assume his proper place on the throne. Much like David in the wilderness waiting for the chance to take the throne, yet already having been assigned it, already been anointed. And between those two moments... That is to say, during that wilderness period when we know who the next king is, but he hasn't yet taken the throne, what happens during that time? Well, in David's life, he was being tested. In our experience today, in the way the picture applies, it is the body of Christ being tested. We're living in a wilderness, so to speak, of the fallen world. And we're being persecuted. And we're being tested. And there will be a day soon in which that testing will come to an end. And we will reign with Christ. So the Lord will assume his rightful throne once he vanquishes the enemy and we'll be there with him. But now we've come to the last chapter. Now it's time for David to have the last obstacle to, assume, to assuming the throne put aside. That is to say that Saul's death must come. Verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadad. And Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. So the story now turns back to Mount Gilboa in the north and to the army of Israel with him. Now this scene was probably taking place simultaneously with David's fight with the Amalekites in the south. And obviously the Lord is working to time these two events and their outcomes so that they create an intentional contrast one with the other. I mean, on the one hand, you have Saul's ignominious death in the north to one group of enemy, and then you have David's victories, triumph in the south to another group of Israel's enemy. And in the case of the north, the Philistines were told they pressed the battle, and they get exactly the result that Samuel foretold Saul would see the night before. Saul's son, Jonathan, is killed on the battlefield. And then also we learn that Saul's other two sons, Abinadab and Malchishua, are also killed. And that wasn't mentioned, but apparently it was always in the plan. And again, that's to be expected because the Lord has already said Saul's dynasty would be wiped out. You can't have any who are available to inherit the throne. And then, of course, Saul himself dies. And he does so in a most shameful way. He is struck 
First, by multiple arrows, it says, archers hit him, and he is mortally wounded. Recognizing that he's come to his end, Saul instructs his armor bearer to kill him, lest the Gentiles capture him and, and torture or do whatever. And the armor bearer is reluctant, to say the least. He's not going to do it for obvious reasons, because think about it. This is the guy assigned to protect the king. Had the armor bearer killed the king, there'd have been no one left alive to testify as to why he did it, or to explain that Saul gave permission for him to do it. Never mind the fact that it doesn't matter if the king tells you to kill him, you're not allowed to. So it wouldn't really change the facts any. The armor bearer basically knows that to kill Saul makes you Saul's murderer, which means you're going to be in big trouble. So there's really nothing to gain in it, right? So he refuses to comply. Well, then Saul does the deed himself, committing suicide by falling on the point of his own sword. And that death is the final irony in his sad story. Because just a day earlier, the Lord had told Saul, finally, after not letting Saul get a word from him for so long, he had told him through Samuel that he would die, Saul would die, in battle at the hands of the enemy. He didn't specify how, he just said he would die in battle. The Lord's silence, it had been the product of Saul's unwillingness to submit to the word of God, right? The whole reason he wasn't hearing from God was because every time God told him to do something, he wouldn't do it. Nevertheless, Saul was determined to hear from God, necessitating a visit to that medium. And the irony here is, once more, Saul has heard the voice of the Lord and chosen to go his own way, even in his death. Rather than conceding to the Lord's will, he decides to take his own life. Now, of course, the word of God was still correct in the fact that Saul dies as a result of the battle. It's not changing the facts as God presented it. The specific cause here was Saul's own hand, which is a fitting conclusion to a life that rejected the word of the Lord time and time again. Saul was more concerned with what might happen to his body if it were found by the Philistines when he should have been focused on what was going to happen to his soul when he faced the Lord following his death. And when the armor bearer sees what's happened, he decides to follow suit in like manner, and he falls on his own sword. And frankly, that's not an uncommon response under these circumstances because the armor bearer was charged with protecting the life of the king. So if the king died, especially in such a dishonorable way, the armor bearer was likely to be executed anyway. So in some sense, this was the preferable way to go. The armor bearer's death simply emphasizes that Saul's sin and death brought many down with him. Not only did the armor bearer die, of course, but his sons died, we hear. But then it says, many in Israel's army died. In fact, in verse 6, we hear all his army died that day. Complete wipeout. Many wives lost husbands that day. Many children lost fathers that day. And that's the consequence of sin. Those consequences extended well beyond the dead on the battlefield. Verse 7. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and lived in them. So as a result of this defeat, the entire north of Israel, basically the entire Galilee, is taken over, overrun, by Philistines. And for a time, the Philistines will own that part of present-day Israel. The towns throughout the Jezreel Valley and into the Jordan are left exposed, and when they see they have no hope, they all abandon and leave their homes, their fields, etc. That's a terrible defeat. It's actually the low point in Israel's history since entering the land. This is the opposite outcome from the one that Saul was supposed to accomplish. If you remember when the Lord declared that Saul was to be the king, you remember how he announced him to Samuel back in verse 10 of chapter 9? So he's out with his servant looking for his dad's donkeys. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. They were going to try to find Samuel to ask him if he could tell him where the donkeys were. 
Verse 11, as they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered and said to him, he is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he is coming to the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Otherwise, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, uh, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will, deli- listen, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Now, that's how he was introduced. And we understand the Lord did not mean, now we understand the Lord did not mean that Saul would defeat the Philistines once and for all. Clearly that couldn't be what God intended because it didn't happen. But what he means instead simply is that Saul could win meaningful victories, and he did in his early days, but in the end he failed at the ultimate mission because of his disobedience. In fact, if you read this opening passage in light of what we just saw in the last chapter, do you notice an interesting symmetry in Saul's time as king in Israel. The story then of Saul began with this innocent Saul seeking for Samuel and finding him with the help of a female guide. And the story ends with a wicked Saul seeking for Samuel by means of an evil female medium. His life, in other words, has gone full circle, albeit in a downward spiral. And now our story comes to an end with the final disposition of his body. Verse 8, And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons, and they sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So when the Philistines are out scavenging among the dead, which is traditionally what they would do after a large battle, they came across Saul's body, they come across Jonathan and the other sons at Mount Gilboa, and they do to Saul what David did to Goliath all those years earlier. They decapitate his body, they take his weapons, and they put the head and the weapons on a tour of the Philistine territories, which is exactly the opposite of what David did with, with the weapons and the head of Goliath. Remember, the weapons show up later in the story of Second Samuel, so they've been kept, and the head was a trophy David took home. So even though it looks like a very terrible thing, it certainly isn't unprecedented. In another contrast to the start of this book, Saul's head ends up in one pagan temple. You find that out in First Chronicles 10. And his weapons end up in another, a different temple, the one we hear of here, Ashtaroth. When the book opened, you found Samuel entering service in God's temple. And you find the book closing now with Saul's body ending up in a pagan temple, or Saul's remnants ending up in a pagan temple. So you have his headless body nailed to the walls of a Jewish town called Bethshan, his head in a temple and his weapons somewhere else in another temple. The Bethshan is a town located on the far east side of the Jezreel Valley where this battle took place. If you go to Israel, this is one of the places you typically go. 
It's a Roman ruin now. The Romans came in later. But there's a really high point in the ruin, a tell. When you're at the top, you're standing on literally the very spot where the walls were originally where the body of Saul was nailed uh, in that location. In further irony, Saul died worrying what the Philistines would do to him, and yet the very thing he tried to avoid has happened anyway. That Gentiles have messed with his body, basically, and dishonored him. By treating a body in this way, you're you're showing great dishonor to the person in death because to treat a body with this kind of disrespect was seen as diminishing their honor. And as a result, the news of where his body is eventually reaches this nearby town, this nearby Jewish town. Jabesh Gilead was about 13 miles away from Betshan, which would mean it would take you most of the night to reach there by foot. And that's what the men of the city did. They learned. They said, we're not going to wait even a minute. We're going to go overnight, walk all night to get there, to claim the body in respect for the king. They remove him from the wall along with his sons. They bring them back. They burn the body, probably to cleanse it from the abuse, whether ritually or otherwise. And then they bury the bones under a tree in Jabesh. This town is important to Saul because it had been rescued earlier by Saul from the Amalekites. So they're probably just repaying him for that honor, for that, for that respect. The tamarisk tree is an interesting final detail. You remember earlier in the story, there was a tamarisk tree that Saul would sit under. It reminds us of where he was spent time during pivotal moments during his inglorious career as king. He played the fool under this tree at different points in time. Remember, he, he feared David so much he was making rash accusations amongst his men about what they were doing or not doing to support him, whether they were all against him or not. Remember where he was? He was always sitting under a tamarisk tree as he made those pronouncements. Later in 2 Samuel, David will eventually honor Saul by reinterring his bones in the family tomb, taking them out from this location. With that, we reach the end of the book, and I thought it would be a fitting way to end by reading a summary that Thomas Constable offers of the life of Saul, because truly the first book of, of the two books of Samuel focuses largely on the disintegration of Saul with a secondary story of the rise of David. The second book is really about David. And this is how Constable sums up Saul's life. He says, This is how the life of Israel's first king, the man after the Israelites' own heart, ended. He was full of promise at his anointing, having many natural qualities that could have contributed to a successful reign. He also possessed the Holy Spirit's enablement after his anointing. Unfortunately, he did not become a source of blessing to Israel, nor the world, nor did God bless him personally. Instead, he became a curse to Israel, to the world, and to himself. He did so because he failed to acknowledge Yahweh as the true king of Israel and because he failed to view himself as Yahweh's servant. His life teaches us that the key to blessing or cursing is one's trust in and obedience to God. This book opened with Samuel's birth, hope, and an answer to prayer. It closes with Saul's death, despair, and an act of divine judgment. It is a book of transition, contrasting rule by God with rule by men. If we want to run things, then they'll turn out as they did for Saul. If we let God rule, they'll turn out as they did for Samuel and David. And with that, we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, thank you, Father, for this study. Impress the truths of what we've learned in our hearts in ways, Father, that will put them to good work. Open our our ears and our eyes, Father, to um, what it means to follow you truly. To see things, Father, as you do and to treat our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ with a fair understanding that we do nothing by our own and that we all must stand before you one day. 
Thank you, Father, and bring us back in a future day for more study. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.